Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Emerald Forest. The Amazon. Mysterious. Powerful. Unchanged since the dawn of time. Until now. Against all odds, Bill Markham searched for his son. An adventure into the darkest regions of a savage wilderness. After ten years, the journey seems over. But Bill Markham's greatest discovery lies ahead. You know something, don't you? From John Boorman, director of Deliverance and Excalibur, comes an adventure into the hidden places of the earth and of the spirit. The Emerald Forest, based on a true story. This is a commissioned show for Sam McConkie, a man who has asked us in the past, I believe, about our interests in the films of John Borman. Our scathing show on the beyond absurd Zardoz, if you haven't heard that one, folks, listen to it, it's hilarious, wasn't enough for Sam, and he took the news that I really don't like Excalibur in his stride and decided between Deliverance and this film to get the School of Movies treatment. So luckily for you guys, he didn't pick Ned Beatty being buggered like a squealing hog, only to be saved by bow and arrow wielding, wetsuit wearing, grizzled man's manly man Burt Reynolds in a film I also really don't like. Now I'm saying this for the record here, folks, I do not like John Borman's style as a filmmaker. His direction is detached and oddly distant. All of his films constitute a series of events rather than a story. This seems like an odd thing to say, I know. Surely every story is just a series of events. To me, however, the distinction lies in the journey the characters go on, and Borman's films never seem to go inside the subjects. It's all external, almost documentary style, without the frank intimacy of interview material. I'm hugely into dialogue, as you know. It's the lifeblood of a film for me, and Borman's dialogue is always bland and uninspiring, dour, humourless and plain, like unleavened bread. He's also one of the worst action directors that I could name, with scenes that are meant to be tense coming off as farcical and antiquated, closer to the original Star Trek than the Russo brothers. And this is fine, it doesn't all have to be about action, but since so many of his films have key scenes that have to be action, that deficiency shoots out their kneecaps. He's also an overwhelmingly masculine director. Men are hairy and muscular, sweaty and determined. They undergo pain and hardship on their road to some form of either redemption or revelation or death. They kill and don't feel too bad about it. Excalibur is a prime example of shitty male behaviour that just spirals and cycles, never abating, never contrasting with kindness or humour. It makes Game of Thrones look like a knight's tale. 
Excalibur itself as a film may be disapproving of this behaviour, but I don't need to take a bath in olives to know I don't like olives. Meanwhile, women are treated poorly, cruelly, abused, and used by bad men. And while there's, again, almost always a disapproving eye, that distance I just mentioned means that it's like a clockwork orange's rape scenes. We are forced to just sit and squirm, feeling deeply uncomfortable, knowing that we are never going to get the interpersonal material that might contextualise or make this treatment bearable. John Borman doesn't hate women like Eli Roth does. He's not weirdly confused about them like Zack Snyder, caught between worship and objectification. Though he's closer to that second one. <laughs> he's more like Stanley Kubrick, another director I don't like at all. And I assure you, cinephiles, about to switch off, that I also don't love the work of Martin Scorsese, or Ridley Scott, or Woody Allen, or Brian De Palma, or Francis Ford Coppola, or Clint Eastwood, or Akira Kurosawa, or Roman Polanski, or Robert Altman... To me, these men represent the past, the foundation of Hollywood that we are building on today. I respect them as artists. I see their influences everywhere. I cannot argue their importance, but their work does not engage me personally. Instead, I am engaged by a slightly newer breed of directors like Guillermo del Toro, Ryan Coogler, the Russo brothers, J.J. Abrams, Taika Watiti, Edgar Wright, Matt Reeves, Shane Black, Justin Long, Doug Lyman, Garth Jennings, Lord and Miller, Chris Sanders, Denis Villeneuve, Steven Soderbergh, Cameron Crowe, Christopher Nolan, Danny Boyle, Matthew Vaughan, Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, with a generous helping of the ones in the middle, James Cameron, Robert Zemeckis, Rob Reiner, Billy Wilder, and of course, Steven Spielberg, because I'm not insane. I'm not sure how I feel about Quentin Tarantino right now. When I say I don't like a director on Twitter, folks, I mean it. In fact, I mean everything I say, and there's always a lot more thinking behind it than time or the character limit will allow. But Sam pressed on bravely anyway, and luckily this is an easier Borman to vibe with for us than, say, Point Blank, or The General, or Exorcist to the Heretic because the Emerald Forest does actually have a strong thread of disapproval for man's treatment of nature. Of course, it's presented in that detached way and contains man's shitty treatment of women as a bonus subtext, but it's clear that this film, like Gorillas in the Mist, Avatar, Pocahontas, Tarzan, Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, The Raccoons, and Captain Planet and the Planeteers, is founded on a respect for nature and a firm ethos that we should be wary of trying to take too much, to delve too greedily and too deep, lest we poison the very earth we stand on. But you pay for us to be honest and for our critical eyes, not for our fawning, billable reverence. So we will now venture into the Emerald Forest and give it our very best shot. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to first off take you through the film moment by moment, because it is a series of events, and then we're going to get to the end, and we will have asked ourselves along the way, what are the themes of this film? And I actually asked Sam uh, McConkie to, to explain to us why he chose this one in particular, so I've got his letter at the end to Excellent. read, and that does actually shed some light on it. Okay. Okay, so... 
It's our second John Borman, as we said. It's uh, It doesn't start with anything quite as crass as the penis is evil. Again, cannot recommend enough our Zardoz show, folks. Mm. Uh, the penis is, however, invisible. Ah, yep. Yeah, I, I, okay. The, not to get crass, folks, in our, like, the first moment, but, yeah, there's uh, this film contains a lot of native tribesmen and women, and uh, the women have their norks out all the time. And as far as I could tell, like, the Combine tribe definitely have their tackle out all the time. Was that taken out? Um, were they re- removed? Mm. Just were they, were they given, like, little pants? To... I don't recall. The, um, I'm not sure about the fierce people, but the invisible people all wear loincloths yeah. that cover everything. Yeah. Like, they're, they're just waste. Coveralls that don't quite cover, cover all. all. Yes, they, they ha- their butts are on show. Yeah. You see a lot of butts. A lot more boobs than butts, though. But a lot more boobs than butts, yeah. yeah. Okay, on to the actual film. Um, <laughs> we are professionals, I swear, folks. Uh, so, uh, the, the, the premise of this story is thus. A man, played by the late... I want to say, yeah, great. Powers Booth. He was really good at what he did. He was phenomenal in Deadwood and just scenery shooing in, in uh, Sin City. Mm. And uh, he was like evil as hell in U Turn. Um, and what else? Like, there's, there's been other stuff he was in. It, his uh, tendency to play men who shred everyone around them for their own gain did mean I always made an assumption about how his character was going to turn out. Yeah. Which was actually quite a good misdirect. He was in Tombstone. He was in The Avengers. Remember that? He was one of those evil counsellors. Oh, my God. Along with Jenny Agatha. Yes, he was. Yeah. He's got this, like, I think we said this in our Deadwood show. I'd say he's got the face only a mother could love, but I think even his mother was kind of scared of him. He's got that kind of Mm. grin. He's like a less cuddly Michael Ironside. (laughs) <laughs> okay so anyway he's the troubled dad in this film uh, he's the dad from Poltergeist effectively only instead of ghosts taking his daughter away mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, native tribesmen in the uh, Amazon take his son away he uh, is overseeing the building of a dam and this is apparently based on a true story we'll go into the legitimacy of that claim uh, a little bit later but uh, he's overseeing the building of a dam he goes out there with his wife uh, Meg Foster mm-hmm. with the really creepy eyes from Masters of the Universe yeah actually you mentioned Poltergeist yeah. and Meg Foster would be the ideal mum to be totally into the weird shit on the other side and go in after the kid. Meg Foster is somewhat wasted in this. Oh I my say. god, there's no Meg Foster in this. I mean, but, but for you a start, didn't need Meg Foster for this role. If your mum's Meg Foster, the creepy evil Lynn woman, the one who was in uh, uh, Quantum Leap, and your dad's powers booth, that kid didn't get kidnapped. <laughs> He's hiding. He ran. <laughs> No, they're, they're, I'm sure they're both very lovely people, but they are blessed with being obscenely creepy in in, in appearance and demeanour. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, he goes out to visit the dam, and they're just, just at the outskirts of the real Amazon rainforest, and uh, his little blonde, white-as-an-old-man's-flanks <laughs> <laughs> moppet 
this kid uh, goes wandering 10 meters into the forest uh, and immediately meets some Amazon natives. And they poke his nose with a feather and grin at him and he grins at them. And he shouts at his dad, there are people out here. His dad sort of wanders in in like, you know, four seconds like, so hey, come back in, Billy. What's his name? Tommy? Tommy. Tommy. It's rather important for the film. Uh, and uh, Tommy's gone. And the, the invisible people have taken him. And he's been spirited away by the fairies. Tommy, where you go? Tommy, where you go? Where you go? Where are you now, Tommy? He's dead. He's not dead. He is dead. He fell in the ocelot pit. Everyone knows that. They never found his body. Never found his body. They munched him down like an old Twix. I find that very difficult to believe. And the dad goes crazy and runs into the jungle. And immediately, from Jump Street... Like, he runs into a bunch of creepers and vines and this real-life terrain that is inavigable to Westerners. Mm. He's horrendously out of his depth straight away, and he's screaming out for his kid, and his kid doesn't call back because he's just been taken away. And uh, it cuts almost immediately to ten years later, and it's like, oh, okay, so that that, that was that. And it, it says that he was looking for his kid for ten years, and he now conducts regular searches for his kid down the Amazon. He you know, goes on boats. He brings one arrow that uh, was found at the scene with him as a, a, you know, a thing to show to various people to say, which tribe is this? Because that's the clue to who has his boy. <laughs> You're going to be taken, Tommy. <laughs> I will find you, Invisible Tribe, and I will kill you. So, I mean, straight away with the building of the dam, this is John Borman commenting on mankind versus nature. Have you seen Deliverance? No. It takes place in this Appalachian Valley that is, uh, at the very end of the film, it says a flood washed through here as a result of the building of a dam and completely routed this, this natural spot, thus made clear that man's uh, involvement in nature has actually created destruction. And he's right on track with that here as well. That's We're- also kind of the underlying theme of Zardoz. Yeah. yeah. So he's consistent. Yeah. yeah. Can't, I can't fault the fact that he, uh, he has a, a tale to tell there and mm. it's not by any means a bad-hearted tale mm. to tell. He's yeah. warning and... We're still routing the Amazon rainforest. We're still fucking up the environment. We've currently got climate change deniers in the White House. We didn't listen. We didn't listen! We didn't listen! We didn't listen! No, we didn't listen, you smug, rich, white nihilists. I remember, folks, in the early 90s, they went all out in the uh, late Bush uh, 1, early Clinton administration... Uh, for environmentalism. Captain Planet and the Planeteers, the raccoons, like all of this stuff from the late, late 80s, early 90s. I remember a, uh, a TV special uh, for Earth Day where Bette Midler playing Mother Earth got sick and a bunch of celebrities were trying to save her, including E.T. and Doc Brown in mm. The DeLorean. And it was an, a, a, a weird little piece. But I remember, you know, very vividly, you know, being made aware of global warming and climate change on Blue Peter and mm. Newsround. Yeah. And I was like, we've got to, you know, I've got to, got to help do something about this. And recycling became a thing. And then people just kind of let it fade into the background. Like it became an irritation, something that you can kind of live with and you do a little bit of your bit. But Trump will gleefully sign waivers that allow the rescinding of laws that prevent companies from dumping 
industrial waste into waterways. Yes, but it's what- like grinning and smiling and well, we're so happy that these laws are now being taken away and now we can poison again without any kind of policing. Isn't it brilliant? We've got our little mole in here. Yeah, but what you've got to remember though is that the the kind of change you're talking about being necessary is generational. Oh yeah. And the attempt to This was Gen X who failed to really but capitalize no, 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 on because it this with is... the help of boomers. No, but what you have to bear in mind is that okay, the the boomers, the the people who actually got this message and listened. And this was the first that was probably the first era that they had this information available to them and were making it public on some level. Mm-hmm. The boomers who listened became hippies. Yeah. Okay. They did not really engage in <laughs> The, the business of the making political structure. laws. Yeah. Exactly. So as a result... They took themselves out of it and thus they have no power in the they changing They haven't of it. been able to make much impact on the actual decisions. Those boomers are still in power. Gen X is pretty limited in terms of what influence we've got at the mm. moment. These I old bastards won't die. What I, and I keep saying this. Every time we discuss this, I am literally just sitting here waiting for all these fucks to shuffle 50 years' time, it'll be a bunch coil. of boomer heads in jars still in charge. Oh, no! <laughs> Please, no! God, you can't take Stephen Hawking and leave us with fucking Murdoch. It's not allowed. But no, I, I think you Stephen will... Hawking was, by the way, ahead in the jar in future, aren't <laughs> I know, I know. Um, was Rupert Murdoch? He was on The Simpsons, the billionaire tyrant. Excellent. When The Simpsons went shit. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think once once you actually see um, the, the baby boomers leaving the political ring for good... Mm-hmm. Um, Dying. I, I was being tactful, Just die. but yes... Um, the shift will then start to go to a generation where you've got more of a percentage that took these messages on board. We can't help but take these messages on board. We were bombarded with them throughout our childhood. Yeah, but there, there was the flip side of that. Remember when I talked about Heal the World and how that became a repellent? Yeah, oh, absolutely. There was like, a backlash. It was the, Don't get the me uncool wrong. club to be in yeah. part of. Yeah, there was a backlash. Don't Those get me fuckers wrong. But, coming around to kids' schools and like doing a little dance and what's she going to do? Help the world come true. Yeah. And like, they they made it very deeply not cool to actually try to Indeed. care about the planet. But there are some fundamental... They made giving a shit feel like something you wouldn't pointless. want to do. Yeah, but but there are some fundamentally practical issues that our generation is not going to be able to ignore in the way that the previous generation was yeah, able to We won't be able to, to ignore it when we're poisoning ourselves to death. Well, exactly. Things like... When we're having to buy air in a can, like when the Perrier oils, in Spaceballs. When the oils run out... Yeah. We're not going to be able to sit there going, oh, this peak oil thing, it's a load of bunkum, we can carry on using it. No, 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 We'll no, be no. too busy chasing each other There's around on wall left. rigs going, I need some gasoline. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the other thing as well. We've got the best cautionary tales. Some guy, I, I, I forget his name, said uh, of, the, 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 of the post-Brexit England, it's not going to be some Mad Max future. Yes, Mr. Davis, yes it is. And I got a single frame from Mad Max Fury Road where the doof was blowing flamethrower uh, flames into the air, surrounded by these beautiful, terrible cars going across this uh, azure-skied Australian flatbed landscape, and it just looked amazing. And then I got a picture, a genuine picture of Stoke-on-Trent where an alleyway was being sold for a pound, mm. and it was just this scum heap. And I thought, you know what? We wish we could get a Mad Max future. <laughs> But the, like I said, this this kind of shift is generational and our generation got loads more of these messages on a wider 
uh, media platform. And by the time we are actually in a position to be in charge of things and not get shouted down by people who are still fervently on the road to their own interests, there, there will be some change or at least it will stop shifting back to... I mean, it's it's never going to go back to as bad as it was before. What you've got to remember is that the the you look at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, you literally couldn't breathe in London, OK? You were unlikely to get past the age of 45 without your lungs turning black. Um, and, and we aren't going back to that. That's See, it feels to me like records are made to be broken. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Well, there you go. We'll, we'll get all that EU regulation out of the way. We can have those factories That's for our again. grandchildren to worry about. <laughs> but but the next generation down, um, they're absolutely saturated with it. I mean, the, the kind of, like, Lyra's learning uh, the essential need for recycling and um, the, the uh, necessity of forestry in primary school she was learning it at like five and six they're going to come out and it's it's not even going to be a question of whether or not this is something you do it will just be part of their life we have regular recycling pickups by our um uh, the people who come and pick up our rubbish these days we didn't get that when i was a kid and that's that's something that, that i kind of i recycle by accident now because it's just uh, I've got too much rubbish for one bin, so anything that's recyclable, I put in the recycling bin so that I can spread it over two. It's just how it works. Mm. And that is an improvement over how things were when we were kids. It It is moving forwards just not fast frustratingly enough. slowly it's kind of, and it's, there are it's a race like can we and progress to factors. the point where we can save our asses mm. or will we actually Before make we the planet yeah. uninhabitable yeah that's basically what it's because going to come down here's to here's the, the, the problem that here is the problem the the greenies have made it seem like you've got to save mother earth it's not about Mother Earth. Mother Earth going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Mother Earth will survive, don't worry. She may only be inhabited by cockroaches, but she will survive. 10,000 years from now, she'll go Ice Age, boom, and then we're back to square one. Mm. Humans gone. Mm. It's us. We're poisoning our water. We're poisoning our Earth. Yeah. That should have been the approach from the 90s onward. It should have been, let's save ourselves. Mm. Because that's something that even conservatives can get behind. Save ourselves, but I'm ourselves. <laughs> I've got to do this. Fuck the Earth, but I want to save me. Yeah, that's another Fuck thing. Fuck the though. polar bears. The, um, the, the 90s, do you remember that whole thing about don't use sprays that have got CFCs in them, the, uh, the ozone layer's fucked up? The ozone layer... I, I may have to check the source on this. Kind of healed itself? It's it's largely repaired. Hmm. So it, these things do have an impact, but they are long-term plans. Yes. But the polarised caps are still melting and they're creating yeah. horrible, very sharp weather spikes. Absolutely. And people are like, Puerto Rico fucking found that out. Mm. Yeah, I mean, part of the difficulty with something like that is that it, even if we manage to wind back all human impact mm. that would still be happening it would just be happening much much more slowly the thing to do is to make it trendy and selfish to save the environment that way the richest people will be behind it yeah well why do you think they push this whole look at this cute polar bear that's going to die if you don't do something about the polar ice caps you this get a was... diamond encrusted polar bear if you save the ice caps now there's an idea just, you, you get the only bear, one though. you're special <laughs> you get the only one how how much does that fill that void that makes you buy diamond encrusted things but this this was something that cropped up when we were um, when we were visiting florida when we were at animal kingdom mm. 
beautiful place. It there's a, there's a whole section there. Obviously, conservation and, and animal welfare is massive for for everything that they stand for. Mm. But there's a section about you, uh, Disney conformist. Shut up. Specifically, uh, saving rainforest areas and the the animal life that's around that area, and they had some information about how they go about doing these campaigns. And they freely admit, and I looked at it and I thought, you know what, you're right, but that's genius, that their campaigns are all focused on the cute animals, on Hmm. the mammals that we can look at and go, oh, a panda, isn't that sweet? Because there's a shed load of other stuff that lives in that bamboo forest and that is part of that um, uh, ecosystem that... Nobody's ever going to put money into let's save this stick insect or let's, you know, but you go for the panda that's at the top of that particular food chain. You put in enough to save the pandas, you save all the stuff that's underneath them as well. You save the dolphin because the halibut is ugly. Precisely. But the halibut gets saved too. Halibut's fine. Two fins up. We call that a win. Right. Um, But I, and I thought, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. And in a way, she says, bringing it round back to the film. Damn. Um, this is it. We've got to talk of, about that movie. This is kind of what, what Bowman does here. There are numerous tribes in this story, yeah. but who do we focus on? We focus on the, the nice, nice ones. <laughs> no, focus on the tribes who are like bashing bones on each other's skulls. <laughs> is that racist? No, it's true. There are tribes in that this... bash bones on each other's skulls. Well, yeah, but the nice the, the ones fierce bash people, yeah. the bones on the skulls because it's part of their. Oh yeah, actually, no, they ritual. do. Yeah, they have to powder, <laughs> powder. They, they, it's the um, it's the Navi folks or the Navi are these guys. Uh, as in, like, even. Do you know who I was thinking of? The Gorgonites. Yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't best, fight. We our should best hide. Skill is hiding. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the fierce people the, are the cannibalistic commando elite. Mm. Oh. Combined, I am Captain Planet! Captain Planet, he's our hero Gonna take pollution down to zero He's our powers, magnified And he's fighting on the planet side Captain Planet, he's our hero Gonna take pollution down to zero Gonna help him put asunder Bad guys who like to Back to Bill, uh, hunting for his son. He's uh, going down the Amazon with a weird, unibrowed troll freak named Uwe. Mm-hmm. I believe he's a journalist. Is he? I think so. He barely factors into this film. But you, you, you don't find out much about him, really. If he's a journalist, the poor newspaper that sent him... Uh, he is an ass. He is a total ass. He's such a weird, creepy character. I almost wish he was in the whole film mm. because everything he says is wrong. It like, really is. Well, he he turns up to Meg Foster, a woman mourning the uh, disappearance of her son, who is now helping out at a uh, shelter for displaced 
native children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it kind of reminded me a little bit of Rabbit Proof Fence. And this is a real situation. I was like, stay with this. This is more interesting almost than the rest of the film. Mm. And uh, uh, Uwe turns up and goes, it's like if she f- helped these children, then she helped the one she lost. Yes, he's like Tommy Weasel. <laughs> And it's like, well, that was a little on the nose, yes, Uwe. thank you, Uwe. That was That the was point. the subtext. Cheers for that. <laughs> and then when he talk, talks to her one-to-one, he says, I bet you kind of wish he was dead, so this could be over. And she's like, no, you don't understand. And then the scene cuts. Like, she was going to fucking give him, like, unload on him there. It was like, yeah, we just cut, because, like, Meg Foster just, she threw so much shit at him, it uncrossed his eyes. <laughs> So yeah, he's got like uh, his his hair sort of goes down his back like a shower curtain, and he's got sort of he's thinning out on top, and he's got a unibrow and troll teeth. He looks like like something out of Harry Potter, which would be fine if he was like a decent person at heart mm. and actually talked, you know, like 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 a person would. But he's got a personality to go with this weird twisted body. I, I mean, I like you know I. I I really don't like to judge by appearances at all. I'd be like... He's he, he's not even... He, honestly, he's not that visually weird. He, But he looks like... Um, when I first saw him, my first assumption was that it was the guy who played the werewolf in Monster Squad. Yeah, also played a werewolf in uh, Fright Night 2. Yes, the Absolutely. bad fright night. In danger of getting typecast, that poor chap is. Um, but my second thing when I realised it wasn't him was, is that the guy who played the subway ghost in Ghost? No. No, I know it's not, but that's the kind, that, that gaunt, pale No, that look. guy's got such a great personality. Hang no, on. I know, I'm talking visually. That's the category that I would put him in. Vincent Chevelli. He was a great guy. Mm-hmm. He was in that X. Do you remember that X Files episode where there was uh, like it was his weird conjoined twin would crawl off its his body and go and commit murders and then crawl back again. Oh it was God. the one with all I the carnival geeks. Oh yes, I do remember that one. I, I think I've got that on DVD. I want to see that one again. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, gone and sorely missed. He was the guy uh, in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies who was Mr. Bond. I could shoot you from Stuttgart and still create the proper effect. Yeah, no, he's not Martin Chiavelli, because that guy has personality. This, Like I said, um, the Elephant Man, uh, uh, the way um, uh, John Hurt played him, immediately endearing. Like, mm. you know, you immediately you know this guy's good to the core. Yeah. But but this guy is a, is just a weirdo creep. There's uh, when he's... Uh, <laughs> he's Guy of Gisborne. <laughs> they're, they're sailing up the Amazon... He uh, like they meet a missionary and he goes, "Hello, I'm Uve, confirmed atheist. Sorry." And it's like, "I didn't ask, but cheers." Mm. And, and then uh, I believe he says that because the guy he's talking to is a missionary. I know. I just said that he didn't ask though. Like he just says, "Hello, pleased to meet you. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an atheist." Like straight away, first thing he says, it's like he goes out of his way to uningratiate himself with people. Yes. And that, so they're sitting down the Amazon and he's like, maybe you would miss these trips if you ever found your boy. And uh, Bill goes, nah, I, I just want to find my boy. And it's like, oh, why don't you shut up and get eaten or something? And he, he does. does. <laughs> <laughs> Bill doesn't actually snap at him, although it feels like he's given all the ammunition to do so. Mm. 
So uh, anyway, they uh, they find out about the invisible people and the fierce people. The fierce people are, I mean, it's last of the Mohicans. You got the good tribe and the evil tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, and the fierce people paint themselves red, and the invisible people paint themselves green. They're eaters of people's flesh. Yes. It's not subtle, folks. No, 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 it's not. The Wenja and the Udam in Far Cry Primal, my favourite pr- uh, Far Cry. What are you saying? What? So they're pitting barbaric and primitive cannibalistic Neanderthals against sympathetic Cro-Magnons. Yes. Fucking propaganda. <laughs> Neanderthals get a very bad rap. I know. <laughs> you, is my point. Do you prefer they the crudes? feeding into the stereotype. Do you prefer the crudes where they... Uh, they, they Stick with the family of Neanderthals. Yes. Yes, me too. <laughs> Although I did love Far Cry Primal. Of all the Far Cries, that was the one that felt the most mm. uh, natural to yeah. me. I loved it. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a recurring trope in uh, cinema and games. Tonight we'll hear the story of Crispy Bear. <clears throat> a long time ago, this little bear was alive. She was alive because she listened to her father and lived her life in routine and darkness and terror. So she was happy. But Crispy had one terrible problem. She was filled with curiosity. Yes, yes. And one day, while she was in a tree, the curious little bear wanted to climb to the top. And no sooner than she climbed to the top, she saw something new and died. Just like that? Yes. Her last moments of Terror still frozen on her face. So we cut to the invisible people who are, you know, the nice tribe. And Tommy is, is now, uh, he's this Blue Lagoon looking motherfucker. That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> got awfully Blue Lagoon all of a sudden. <laughs> but here's the thing. It's Charlie Borman uh-huh. playing Tommy as a, I was going to say an adult, but inverted commas. commas. He becomes a man. Yeah. Before her eyes. <laughs> but he is still in, very in boyish. Um, but yeah, so it's Charlie Borman, who is um, John Borman's son, and he was also in Excalibur. Yes, he was as uh, Mordred. Mordred. Now, here's the problem Charlie Borman in Excalibur made me think of the princeling in Monty Python, is it? But father. Yeah, exactly. And no singing. Him? Really? <laughs> So, unfortunately, every time Tommy was on screen, that was how I expected him to talk. And whenever Tommy's not on screen, everyone <laughs> must be, be saying, asking, where's, where's Tommy? Tommy? <laughs> or Tommy, as he's called Tommy, him. Tommy, they call him. But um, Sharon yeah. said before we started this, oh, hang on. Is he going to be, like, the best native ever because he's the white guy? And I was like, oh, no, they're not going to do that. Yeah. They totally they, they do that. Much In do fact, that. spoilers, he becomes the chief at the end. Yeah. It's Tarzan. It's Kerchak makes him chief. Mm, yeah. And to be fair, it's because he's the 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 it's the chief of the tribe that adopts him when yeah. they find him. He becomes his daddy. And it does make sense that if a random outsider toddler wandered into a, a tribe, if they were going to look after him, then it would probably be the chief who'd have to take responsibility yeah. for him. That, that that does make logical sense. And they'd also w- make sure that it was like, look, if you're going to train him, train him well, yeah. as opposed to just sort of like half ass train him. Mm. But still, <laughs> he also marries the cutest girl in the whole tribe. And the... the, the st- Oh, the smartest? Would we say smartest? She's certainly got a little bit of a, an edge to her tongue. She's the only one able have. to engage a man in conversation. Yes. Yes. But that's more down to the treatment of women in this film. This is true. Yes. Get on to that now. Uh, so, um, 
So yeah, he's become one with nature. He's been taught by the invisible people to uh, work with his environment. When they go hunting, they um, he specifically runs with like three arrows held in one hand, his bow hand, as opposed to a quiver. So that again. That's the Na'vi. Like, they're not going to be firing loads of arrows. They're only going to kill what they need to kill and then bring it home. It's something that I actually worked on very hard in Tiger's Eye as well. Yeah. Which kind of is a... If if uh, Harau had immediately brought Miguel back to her village and said, right, this is a new boy, I'm keeping him, it would have been that. But yeah. I'd seen that story already played. So, so I was you, like, you took a different let's angle. do Jungle Book instead. But, but, there's a, but then twist that again. There's a fundamental flaw unfortunately, in the way that Tommy is presented um, within the tribe. And it, and it kind of is at, at right angles with the fact that they're called the invisible people. He's okay. not very invisible. Now, yeah, well, this is the thing. Not nearly, this, nearly this as tribe, invisible as, as we, we may have, have led you to believe. believe. This tribe use a green paint, yeah. which will become crucial to the story shortly. They get that um, from, like, special stones in the river or That's something? right, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and they use that to camouflage themselves so that within the emerald forest, uh, they can hide amongst the trees and not be seen. And this is how Bill misses them when he comes out yeah. to see uh, He's Tommy standing, like, a foot away from them going, yeah. Tommy! And, he, and all they just do like... is just, like, fade into the bark and he doesn't see a damn thing. And, and like, you can see them going... <laughs> This is so sweet. Well, the only reason that Tommy sees them is because they smile at him, you know, because he looks hilarious. When he's an adult and they're taking him out hunting, he is, as you have already pointed out, the palest, most vividly blonde motherfucker who has ever come across this part of the world. He sticks out in those trees like a sore fucking thumb. or Well, like a bloodless thumb. But the point being, they do give him some green paint. It doesn't help. He really needed to have plastered his, his silky blonde locks down with mud and, and be absolutely covered from head to foot. He should be looking like... Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. in the last act of Predator. Predator yeah, no, instead um, he's in a... order to maintain the invisibility thing. It's such a mix of green and white. He just looks like a Celtics fan. Well, indeed, but if you did that, you wouldn't actually be able to tell it was him for a start, and the the idea of him being this outsider child that they've taken in would not be so significant. What really kind of hammered it home was the fact that the opening frames of the film is Tommy as a child wandering through the streets full of South American people, mm-hmm. and and he d- it, I was just watching it going, well, this child's obviously going to be the star of the film because he sticks out. He really does. He is very prominent. Mm. He's the white heart. Indeed. Which his father is hunting. Oh, very good. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Tommy, Tommy goes off to find some stones to impress this girl. Yeah, this is the green stones that the tribe use. Um, they've obviously accumulated or, or they've had a, um, a bunch of them from years back. They've now only got a tiny bit left. Yeah. Ah, okay. so and and he has. They're about uh, to become the visible people. Well, indeed, um, but he has as as part of his manhood um, ceremony, which I really really liked yeah, that bit. Me too. So the manhood say, ceremony is to be covered in ants. They come, yeah, it's I've I've seen somewhere that that was done. Mm. It's it's part of the the pain thing, but we'll get to that in a minute. But the um, they come to get him. He's swimming in the river, and they come and find him, and they the all the the tribesmen. 
um, have come to get him and they're all doing this odd little dance on the rocks. And they say, Tommy, you're a stupid boy and you're, you know, arsing around in the river like an idiot. Um, it's time for you to die. And my immediate thought was, ah, this is some kind of manhood ceremony. He has to die as a boy and be reborn yeah. as a man. And that um, is exactly what happens. Right, yeah. He has to stand next to a termite tree and let them all crawl over him and bite him. And yeah. and, um, and it's... It, it's Oh, no, not just let them crawl. They're like they're they're popping termites yeah. on his eyelids, and he's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, just brilliant. You want to put one on my lower lip? I think you missed a spot. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, but that that does sort of tie. I mean, I don't know how much of this Borman based on actual research. Um, it does say at the beginning of the film that this is based on true events, but apparently there was some question as to how <laughs> true the events were. It's based on true yeah. events. Um, In other words, he kind of cherry-picked a couple of things and made up a whole lot of stuff. Indeed. But there, there are numerous um, manhood ceremonies and rituals around the world mm. um, that are based on the idea of tolerance of pain and in the context of them being the invisible people this actually makes complete practical sense if you are hiding in the forest from an enemy or from something that you're trying to hunt and ants crawl up your leg and bite you you need to be able to not go ow ow fucking ants get off my leg you need to be able to maintain that stoic no you know what just let them bite i have to stand here and be quiet so it, it all fits in. It's about the stoicism, yeah. Absolutely. And um, so then he takes this drug. And when I say takes, somebody brings out what looks like the longest peace pipe oh, yeah. in the history of ever. He gets a tall glass of water. And it's got it's got a tiny little bowl at one end with yeah. a green powder in, which I'm assuming, again, is, is this rock that they use for mm-hmm. painting themselves. Unobtainium. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite possibly. I have no idea what this stuff is. If it's just rock... Oh, it's a nugget of purest <laughs> green! <laughs> and he snorts it. They, they put the end of the pipe up mm. his nose and then somebody blows down it to shoot this green powder up his nose. Mm. And it's just... I'm sat there thinking, are you going to coke up your children in order to make well, them men? To that, I say... Yes, that's it, exactly what they do. Yep, it's a vision quest. It is. But they, they go somewhat hyper mm-hmm. and um, there's, a, there's a kind of um, an explosive physical thing happens just in the sense that that these usually quite calm and reserved people once they've snorted the green get up and start boogieing around like there's ants on them which in tommy's case obviously there may well be boogieing boogieing yes um and um and yeah and then he has a vision quest and he sees through the eyes of an eagle condor oh it's a condor is it i'm gonna go ahead and say condor okay um and he sees a, a river not too far from there where there are some of these green stones so he says that he will take this on as his quest that he will go and bring back the stones because they need more Wondering whether this was a film of its time or not, we tracked down some old reviews of The Emerald Forest. See, it only got a two from Empire. John Borman's ecodrama is truly aesthetic in the uh, verdure, 
John Bolton. Really authentic in the verdure of its Amazonian setting. That's not a word. It is. He, he shoots every wounds. leaf and limb of the feverish forest with stunning intricacy, almost smothering the film in nature. This was way before HD. Uh, look what we are losing. He screams through the dense picture. How can we allow this? He's here as a director clamouring with passion, but there's something bullheaded about the inordinate amounts of beauty on show that puts you right off. Which is exactly what you were talking about with yep. the heal the world thing. Yep. Bring on the damn damn you want to demand, suffocating on its righteousness, just make the nagging Englishman stop going on. He also cast his own son Charlie, then as blonde as an angel and thin as a twig, now thick with largesse and busy silting the world's atmosphere with motorbike fumes, presumably to give some Russia familial resonance. What if he were your child? A theme lost on everyone but the self-satisfied director. Thankfully, we do get Powers Booth, an enormously underrated actor. Yes, he is. Brilliant as the human face of desolation in his... Ju- it is his journey to realisation that nature is best that drives the film rather than a simple search for the lost boy. I think we have a bit of a cynic here. Mm. Structurally, the film is more involved than it appears. The native sections of... This is in inverted commas. Of Borman's movie are as gallingly realistic as the study of trees, but there remains an air of patronising gent about the harsh rites of passage this squeaky kid... Did he have to be quite this blonde? See? ...has to endure like before he passes into adulthood. What does Borman want us to, uh, us to make of drinking human ashes and blood? Is this a better way of life? A nat- uh, nature's brutal necessities a better path than the sucker of his real father's devotional love? There is an interesting ambiguity to this, but Borman chooses the path of melodrama as Booth and Son are reunited with a cloying sense of fulfilment. After all the bewil- bewailing about Mother Nature, is this really just a film about dad issues? Wow. Wow. Somebody took away a completely different idea of it than I did. Yeah. If you look on YouTube, no one's talking about this film. So you're actually, Sam McConkie, quite right to uh, recruit us for for this thing because we are producing words that no one's ever said about this film because no one could be bothered in this day and age, it would appear. Mm. Um, Well, they have Avatar now. Yeah, don't need it. So the fierce people eat Uve, and not a minute too soon. Mm. Although maybe too soon, because it would have been great to have Uve like just hanging around every scene, saying awful things like "Don't eat that. You don't know where it's been." You don't know. eat me. You don't know where I've been. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, he could have been Benny from the Mummy. <laughs> yeah. But no, they eat him. Like, it is better to be by the side of the devil than in his mouth. Yep, true story. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, Bill wisely goes to the fierce people and uh, says, uh, do you know this arrow? And the fierce people go, oh, the invisible people, we hate them. We're going to kill you and eat your gun. And Bill runs off firing the infinite ammo from this gun. <laughs> it is an M16, folks, and he fires off shot after shot after shot after shot after shot on full auto. He's just rocking and rolling. Brrr. And it is like straight out of the like late 60s, early 70s, like Lee Marvin, like hard man. He's just shooting natives left and right. And it's like, are you fucking serious? And this is the action that I told you about, Mm. folks. There's not even enough of them for him to need to do that. Like he could take them all out with a single... Or more specifically, they could take him out with a single poke of a spear. Mm. But no one wants to because he just shot some guy. Yeah. So, yeah, he goes off running off, and um, then he meets his son, and his son's out hunting, and there's actually, there's a great, there is a great moment. I will give this film that. He's, like, he's been um, wounded. I think he gets, uh, pokes himself on a branch or something. Bill. Bill. Uh, He gets an arrow in the shoulder. Gets an arrow. Oh, no, that happens just after this. Oh, okay, so he's already been wounded 
by some of the means. Well, he's kind of battered. Okay, so he's not cut and wounded properly yet. But so he's looking at his son down the barrel of this M16, and his son's like holding a, um, a bow, bow and arrow. arrow on him, and it's like that moment in Pocahontas. You know, when she, he sort of, you know, he puts down his gun and walks towards her. Da, 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 da. And it is. Don't. I know. No, no, no. I'm just envisioning this scene breaking into that and it totally works. It works. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so grateful to you. So they have this slightly bewildered, hello, I might be your dad. And then suddenly the fierce people turn up, start firing arrows, and he's like, oh no, and he turn around and he's shorted with the admission gun. And then uh, his son fires off a bunch of arrows, and then they sort of scramble away in a really crap way because John Borman can't direct action. I keep saying it, folks, but I'm going to really say it here because this scene is key. Gets shot in the shoulder, finally drops his gun. I think he, he does. does, yeah. Because the, the fierce people. He finally runs out of bullets. And start trying to reload it with bits of wood. Yeah. Yeah, the fierce chief, who is, he's a rum cove, he's a wrong'un, is like trying to just drop wood chips into its magazine slot. And then he's like hitting it and going, ah, it won't work, in front of everyone, I might add. What a great way to depower yourself in front of the tribe. Like the tribe, like you can't even make the magic tube work. And, uh, <laughs> if you know what I mean, his many wives tell me. Um... Ate them and not in a good way. That's my new. Uh, <laughs> that's my new character, the gossipy cannibal. <laughs> He's just so indiscreet. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Bill is wounded and is taken back to the uh, uh, the good people. Uh, the or, or, or simply probably just known as the people. Am I just imagining this? Their well, word for themselves is the people because that's the Navi. Well, I get the impression that they like you've got the fierce people, the invisible people. So I think they all call themselves the people. They're made out of jam people. Well, yeah, indeed. But then there's like a modifier that identifies them specifically right. by characteristic there is another tribe as well the name of mm. which i can't remember but the forgettable people there'll be a similar situation i would have thought which makes sense there's a really nice bit of interaction actually between um tommy and his father at this point before he takes him back to the tribe um he he says to him i'm going to take you back to my father and bill says well no i'm your father because he recognizes mm. him and, and tommy does recognize him too but then uh, obviously he was like seven when he went missing yeah it's been um, 10 years He's but then 17 now. they they get into an exchange where he says well i'm your father and tommy's like no you're not my father no, that's I my am father. your father you are daddy and he says I, I dream about you and now you're here and you're real but it, it's the way for Tommy it's all totally in stride it seems completely natural to him that this this uh, mysterious figure that he's been dreaming about since he was a kid would suddenly be back, here yeah. in the flesh yeah um, he's it, not stropping like a teenager exactly but he doesn't he doesn't kind of make that that connection of the story to well you were my father back then and it's just that we've been apart all this time mm. um he he's kind of rewritten who daddy is yeah um which i thought was really really quite touching and especially in the fact that he's able to sort of 
reconcile that so easily with my, you know, my father is the man who raised me, who mm. who brought me to manhood. Again, to manhood. not dissimilar to uh, Tarzan work. Uh, whenever I say Tarzan, by the way, I only ever mean the Disney one. Mm. All the rest of them can yeah. swing on a vine. Mm. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Tarzan, whatever his um, his difficulties with Kerchak, always thinks of Kerchak as his father, even mm. if he never calls him that. Yeah. His relationship with him and the nature of the difficulties that that relationship presents him with are that of a father and son. Disney's Tarzan is a infinitely better telling of Basically the same story. And they're all speaking their own language. I really appreciated that they didn't make the concession to the Western audiences by having everyone suddenly start speaking English with an accent. Mm. I did wonder about that, though, because um, Bill can speak it. Yeah. And I didn't know whether it was like, okay, so do the tribes all have their own languages or is are, are they all speaking... Um, a, a, I mean, I'm... I would think that if everybody was going to speak a common language, it would be Spanish or Portuguese, yeah. yeah. But either way, it's uh, it's all this uh, their, their own language, and uh, they with with subtitles, which reminded me of another film also set in the rainforest, which not many people actually saw, Apocalypto. Now, which uh, is directed by Mel Gibson, who is a thoroughly objectionable piece of shit, and I don't want anything to do with him. Of his films. I'd prefer this by far to The Passion of the Christ. And uh, I got some people justifiably saying uh, when uh, I uh, published the uh, movie A Day on Apocalypto that it, it plays fast and loose with uh, Mayan history and uh, uh, the, it, it misrepresents their culture. But again, you have this sun-worshipping, human-sacrificing bunch of evil Mayans and you've got the good people who live in uh, deep in the forest. And that, again, has... Um, like, no one speaks a single word of English the whole way through. It's all uh, subtitled uh, language. And they refer to uh, Bill's people, us, as the termite people, the ones who come digging, the uh, people who create great structures like the termites do out of the earth. But consume things and leave them dead. Yeah, but consume things and leave them dead. And they refer to everything outside of themselves as the dead world. Mm. They see their world as a circle with them at the centre in the forest and everything outside that forest is the dead world. They don't want to go out there. They don't want to know what's out there. It's As far as they're concerned, they're very disapproving of us and why wouldn't they be? Well, it it seems, the the way they presented it, it seemed to me that it wasn't exactly that they were disapproving. It's just that there was this very dividing, uh, very firm dividing line between the world as in the world that is alive and green and and that is around us, Mm -hmm. and the dead world, which is beyond the edge of the forest, which is now all dirt because you've ripped everything up. And it's not... It didn't even seem so much that that they thought that this was bad or that they had any real concept that this was a terrible thing, Um, albeit that, obviously, mass destruction is 
going to have a significant impact on their way of life. They talk about the, their world getting, or the edge of the world getting closer, because obviously the people who are bulldozing, the, the, they're getting closer to the edge of the forest and, and moving the edge of the forest inwards. Um, it's just that, you know, this is where we live. There's no point in us going out into the dead world. We can't live there. The way we live doesn't work out there because, as they point out at one stage, we're not invisible out there anymore. Mm. It's That's not how we can live. And this viewpoint clearly pissed off that Empire reviewer who was like, well, what would you prefer? You, I, you want beer and skyscrapers or drinking the blood of the dead? And... Shitting in a bucket. There's a spectrum, guys. It's not one or the other. And the also, what he said about um, consuming, uh, drinking blood and consuming the ashes of the dead, those two things are presented in very different contexts. The fierce people drink the blood of Uwe and the other guy who's with Bill when they catch him. Mm-hmm. They poke holes in them and then they come and take blood from the holes and eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's We're not supposed to be emulating the cannibals, though. Well, Those guys well, are yeah, fucked. That's my point. It's aggressive. It's a. Um, it seems to be like, a, you know, we, we drink the blood of our enemies kind of thing. Mm. The consuming of the ashes of the dead is, again, this is like the manhood ceremony. This was a a bit I really appreciated, and I actually thought it it was done a little bit ham-fistedly, but I thought the the point of it and what it was presenting was actually quite beautiful. Um, there's There's a bit later on where many people get killed, and they have to, um, they they have a funeral ritual, which is that they uh, cremate them, and then they take the ashes of their bodies and they any bones that are left they grind them down to powder and then they take a handful of those ashes and they put them in a big urn which contains ashes from everybody who's ever died from this tribe. I don't know how old this urn is. They say it goes back as far as first man and first woman. But the idea is that this urn but contains... Sure is very pie, 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 pie. Well, indeed. But the idea is that this urn contains a part of everyone who's ever died within this tribe. And then what they do is they take a little bit of the... So they take some of the ashes of the people who've just been cremated, add them to the urn mix them together, and then they take a little bit of the ashes from the urn, mix it with water, and then everybody in the tribe um, takes a drink of the water. Mm. And the idea is when we die, we become part of our history, part of our ancestors, but the drinking of the the ash is to remind us that our ancestors are also part of us. And it's it's very obviously very meaningful for them. It's not the same as drinking the blood from the enemies. Mm. Um, but, I mean, I'm sure if the fierce people were being presented as, you know, this is the tribe that we comprehend and, and understand the point of, then there would have been a way to... to um, present that that was a little bit Well, less. the fierce people are obviously arch-conservatives, whereas the invisible <laughs> people are liberal. Well, they are red, so yeah. there you go. Um, the fierce people would love Trump with bacon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, he could go around the whole tribe. <laughs> so many good people coming up to me and telling me that the fierce people are worth visiting. When we die, our bodies become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass. And so we are all connected in the great circle of life. But yes, so the, the consumption of the ashes, um, although chap from Empire obviously saw that and went, Ugh. Ashes, ew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought that was quite um, yeah. quite meaningful and, and 
Well done. As I've expressed in a recent podcast, my ideal would be the tribal futurism, the incorporating certain elements of ancient tradition into their day-to-day lives whilst also shooting for the moon. I love that as, as a way of uh, humankind to, uh, to move forwards. Mm, yeah. And Black Panther, as we expected after uh, talking about this in Overwatch, turned out to be exactly that. Forest is a wee bit National Geographic and a wee bit colonial. Sharon's, bit. Sharon's doing a little bit, a little bit, little bit something there. Now, Nas- National Geographic apparently have recently admitted. I was just going to say they've got a bit of a history of racist portrayal of yeah. um, people. Yeah, they are now looking back on what they've done. They're asking themselves questions publicly, mm. and they're trying to move forwards whilst acknowledging the mistakes and oversights of their past and maybe not ogle quite so much at tribes women's norks. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, but you get a lot of norks in this. My God, the amount of tits on show. Tit, tit, tit. And it would be fine were it not for the level the camera tends to linger around. If, yeah. if they were just there yeah. and we were looking at women going about their daily business... Then that would be fine. It's a lot of like, hey, these are some cuties, but right? You're yeah. welcome. There's there's a particular shot actually, which kind of of um, is a good little macrocosm of, mm. of this, which is um, Kirichi, yeah, which is um, Tommy's wife, um, and she's in the the river, and several of the girls are in the river bathing and the like, and. She goes to climb out of the river, and the the way the camera is positioned, it starts off, she's standing in the river, naked almost completely, and water up to her waist. And that's fine, you can see her face and, and everything, and she's obviously doing something. And then she goes to walk out, and the camera just stays at the same level. So gradually she climbs out of shot until you've just got her torso framed, just boobs and ass. We don't need the head for our purposes. Oh, God. And, and honestly, there's, there's times when it seems like that's exactly what the cameraman's thinking. Like, like you can just see that the cameraman is looking at boobs and arse and not really all that fussed about anything that's going on outside that periphery. Well, the goods are on show. Let's just get on. So, uh, but don't get me wrong. They're people. They're I, doing stuff. I really enjoy looking at the naked female form. I really wouldn't enjoy sitting next to, say, John Milius, director of uh, Red Dawn and Conan the Barbarian, going, look at this. Mm, she's gorgeous. Conan's mum just about to get killed. Yeah, she's really good here. Terrible waste to throw her over, huh? I would say. Female cultist convinced to throw herself to her death. Another waste. Another female cultist with her tits out. We kill so much beauty in this movie. Oh, this is about the orgy. Yeah. I remember she was like, totally sweating and... And I like Conan the Barbarian, but ugh. The actress is Brazilian, by the way. And I will say, she is very beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt about that. But that's but, not the point. Yeah. Has to listen to the 
women problems. Even then, in this prehistoric times, women were already in the jewelry, huh? Yeah. After a while, I was going to think, are there guys in this tribe at all? Because, like, around this midsection, it's a lot of ladies. Mm, like, the, 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 the first act, the second act, a lot of ladies. You there. do get an overabundance of women in sort of the everyday stuff. There's, there's more mm. men in the ritual scenes um, because they're the ones dancing around the fire. But one other thing that I noticed. There are numerous scenes where the entire tribe are gathered to do X, Y, Z. One, one woman breastfeeding. Yeah. One. Okay. I think there'd be more than that. Thinking about it, I think there'd be more kids than they actually showed. Yeah, like there weren't lo- that many children, were yeah. there? One or two very small kids. Lots of older teenagers and young adults. Not much in between. It's a little bit of a nudist colony. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's the making of the sword. This whole movie has to do with that. Now he's putting it in the snow. That's me when I was young. Here, here's the hypnotizing that he does. Look at it. She's totally hypnotized. Then she separates her neck. And here's the guy that buys me now. Then I break his arm. Right. Just the pounding him with the head and yeah. then breaking his head. Now I'm enjoying it already. And this all would have been fine had we really kind of gotten to know some people in the tribe. Like, we get to know the the adoptive father of Tommy. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, he's, a, he's a major character. Yes, but that's about it. We get to know his wife a bit. A little bit. A little, little tiny bit. Mm. But, I mean, Avatar, for all of its, you know, Pocahontas in space, you get to know a couple of those... Uh, no, actually, I suppose you only really get to know him a little bit. Yeah, no. No, this is, uh, this is something that's actually quite uh, prevalent in all of these Pocahontas-style um, mm. f- like fantasies. You don't actually get to know many Yeah, I think the, the difference the that you're noticing is that CCH, Pounder and Wes Studi are extremely charismatic. Yeah. So it feels like you get more of them than there actually yeah. is. Yeah. And um, Jaman Hansu. As well. Mm. And if you believe that, he also believed there are Richard Simmons Juniors running around. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Bill heals. Does he take the green stuff? Uh, later they, like, on. They shove it does. up his yeah. nose and he yeah. freaks out. He does have a vision quest later on because um, if Tommy's um, creature is the eagle stroke, condor. condor stroke, whatever that bird is, Bill's is a cougar, a leopard? Jaguar. Jaguar. It, he envisions a, a jaguar diving into the river. Does it that come to so something? Cute. It's something to do with him being uh, aggressive and. Oh, actually, he does have a vision for... of the jaguar attacking the driver of a tractor. Oh, nice. That actually does tie in with the end. As in, it's saying the forest yeah. needs your help. It needs you to, to it help needs you, you to protect, to it. protect yeah. it against the termite people. Yeah. I would really like to have had that developed a lot more rather than it being something that I only thought of a day later. Uh, so there's a boob dance wedding, and this thing goes on for a while. Uh, the ladies are all jiggling around, and there's a, a neat bit where, like, Tommy. Uh, his is the groom, and then his wife is the uh, uh, the bride, and they get surrounded by people of the opposite sex, going like sort of, you know, what about this temptation? And then they eventually have to get back together and go, nah, I don't need all of that stuff. And uh, it's, it's it's on the nose, but it's nice, symbolic. Mm. Kind of like gets the whole stag night and hen night thing out of the way in three minutes. So anyway, the fierce people are given guns by Westerners uh, and they invade the village. They kill a bunch of men. They stole all the women 
and they uh, bring them back to trade the women for more guns so that the women can be used as prostitutes. This is in the down spiral of the film when actually like it kind of loses its momentum and like it, it was going strong and then I kind of switched off at, at this stage. I was still taking notes, but the problem is whenever I was taking notes, I'd have to look down at the iPad and tap away and they were talking in a completely different language and I was missing a hell of a lot because I wasn't able to read the subtitles. That's problematic. Mm. I have to admit... Remember that, folks, if you're getting us to review a film that is not in English. Uh, Yeah, sometimes it's easier than others, but um, but, uh, there are bits of the plot that were going on here that I had to get from Wikipedia because I couldn't follow what was happening in detail again because it's that distance <clears throat> but it's you know? but yeah i mean when when i say by the way that that some films with subtitles are easier than others to follow it there are a lot of of subtitled films which are very visual you have a director who is superb at telling you what is going on with what you can see on screen Miyazaki yeah. is a is a fantastic example of this. I mean, I I generally tend to watch. I, I don't like watching dubbed films anyway. Animated slightly different, especially so not if dubs. they've done a particularly good job in in casting the um, the the western. Yeah, the Ghibli uh, American dub uh, American voice language ones are great. Are, are Spirited excellent. Away being fantastic. Princess Mononoke as well. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, however, I do generally prefer to watch the Japanese versions. Simply because the way it's visually presented, there's, there's a, a lyrical element to the the uh, language yeah. that fits in with what you're seeing. And it doesn't really matter if you miss a few words on the subtitles because you can tell so well what's mm. going on on the screen. And something like, and I know it's not the greatest example of a French language film in the world, but Brotherhood of the Wolf is very visual. You can tell exactly what's going on, even if you don't have the subtitles at all. Also, Emily. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's they're very very visual films, um, very easy to follow, and um, you know the the words almost just provide a bit of an enhancement. Mm. Whereas with this, it's it's not that visually amazing in terms of communicating exactly what's happening. It is when they're with the tribes in the forest, but once you get to the part where they're they're coming back out into mm. the dead world and dealing with the guy in the brothel and all that kind of thing, it does become a little bit hazy. To it's kind of visual, but like the guy in Empire was always like, "Yo, he's he's photographing the forest." And yeah, back in 1985, this was amazing. Yeah. Since then, we've had some truly spectacular forests. Mm, absolutely, and it's it all just looks a bit blurry now. Yeah. And and I mean to be fair, you know, he he goes into a, a bar and finds someone who's running a brothel and tries to sell him women. It's not that difficult, but there's some finer details that get hmm. missed, like the whole gun trading thing, which I had to pick up from. This isn't me saying, I don't want to read things while I'm looking at things oh. at the same time. God. I don't want to write things while I'm also reading things yeah. while I'm also looking, <laughs> looking at, things at things at the same time. Yeah. Too many things. Indeed. But, um, yeah, no, we're, we're not the kind of people who are put off when the um, cinema attendant says, you do, you do know, know this has subtitles, title. right? <sighs> yes. I... I like with those guys, I'm never annoyed at them. I'm just, I just oh, no, immediately no, I think I am of the sons of bitches who storm out and said, "I didn't realise there'd be words on screen." You do know it's subtitled. You do know it's in black and white. Can we just advise you that there is a period of silence at the beginning of this film? There's nothing wrong with the sound. <laughs> or in fact, yeah, when when one particular ship goes to hyperspace, do not adjust your cinema. Mm, <laughs> okay, so um, all of these poor. 
Chimes women are, are, are kidnapped and sold to this. I mean, it's not even a brothel. It's a fucking. <laughs> it's a back room. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a static home. Yeah. The the, the rest of the invisible tribe uh, go to the outskirts of this fence and they're like, we gotta we gotta get up and over. And it's like, oh, the, the these vines are cruel and sharp. And then one of them tries to climb up a power line. I'm like wincing at this point and I remembered at this, this stage will not go well. I've actually seen this film before and I realised that I'd seen it in the 90s and blanked it out because it's so boring uh, but this bit this particular electrocution scene had stuck in my head is that because it's a little bit similar to the electrocution scene in Jurassic Park no I think I just I was like oh no you poor sod like you have no idea what you're about to encounter like he's he's pulling his way along one of the lines and he's like I'm just going to Switch to this other line, and then suddenly he's getting well, it straight the, through his heart, they, falls to the ground, and it's arching his back, and it's really painful looking. Because they they basically talk about it like it's a tree with vines, yes. don't they? And that's that's their frame of reference for this. It's, there's a really nice touch here as well, actually, that you you see earlier on in the film proof of concept of this one of the um, invisible people shimmying up a tree and climbing up it with great aplomb. They do the thing; it's like what Mulan does, but without needing the medals. They just loop their hands around the trunk yeah. and climb up on the soles of their feet. Um, very deftly, I might add. And um, when they try to climb up this one, because it's obviously been smoothed, they, they can do it, but you can tell it's harder for them. They yeah. haven't got the bark to grip onto with their feet. And I thought that was quite mm. a nice touch. So they break into this makeshift brothel, save all the girls, mm. and they're running out with them. It's another action scene. It's a terrible action scene. It and is. Powers Booth has once again got a machine gun. He's running around the place going... And it's like a, a shit 80s action movie of the kind directed by men who hadn't even gotten wind of how action had developed in the 80s and were still doing it like it was the late 60s, early 70s, Absolutely. and like hadn't even gotten wind that Sam Peckinpah was already, as of the late 60s, <laughs> doing more dynamic action than that. Yeah. Although one thing I really did appreciate about the, the rescue is that it's not really the case that they barge in and the girls are like cowering in corners and they come in and, and grab yeah. them and get out with them. Basically, as soon as their menfolk turn up, they go, oh, right, okay, now we know how we're going to get out of here. Hmm. Stab, knee in the bollocks. They <laughs> actually participate in their own escape. There's less horrific violence than I would have wanted at that point. Mm. It's like, you know, these guys have proved themselves to be utterly deplorable. Mm. And uh, Oh, so at this stage you wanted to see One guy was talk. yelling in pain. I was like, did she just rip his dick off? Because if so, I, I need to see it. I'm, I'm I need to sure see she her. just kicked him in the nuts. Nah, I need to see her <laughs> rip that thing right off like that yellow bastard. Mm. Okay. Who incidentally was Powers Booth's son? Someday you might be thinking life has passed you by. Your spirits might be sinking with hope and short supply. And that's the reason why. That's the reason why. So then Tommy's adopted father gets shot as they're running away because the uh, the um the fierce people are guarding this brothel and they run after them with guns and start shooting into the woods and uh so he loses Kerchak and uh Bill gets totally backseated. Does he just like go, I'm going home? 
What happens to Bill at this point? I'm not 100% sure. Um, Again, this is like separating Tommy from Bill at this point is absolutely key drama. Yeah. It is key drama to your story and neither of us can remember the scene where they parted company. That is terrible storytelling. Absolutely no questions asked. I'm assuming he must go back to his apartment because yes. Tommy comes and finds yes. him later. But... I don't know quite what his reasons are for disappearing at that point. Yep. Okay. So, um, Tommy uh, goes back to the city, gets in a canoe, meets a tribe that have become somewhat more civilized and are actually living in the city. Uh, again, inverted commas, they're the Bat Tribe, and uh, enlist their aid. It's actually quite a shrewd move because he's like, right, we need a conduit here, mm, someone yeah. who kind of knows the ropes because we had clearly just got completely reamed on this thing. Oh, and one he point, he is smart. I have yeah. to say that. Oh yeah, Tommy's pretty enterprising. Again, if this had been a like a good character piece of a film. It's a two two character film. You stay. You start with Bill at the beginning, and then you cut to Tommy being taught, and you stay with Tommy as he's being taught to be part of this tribe. Yeah. Montages and all, and you have his struggle to be part of this. Instead, you cut all of that out, and you just cut straight to Tommy. But again, it's from this weird detached way where you're just watching this goofball muck around in a swimming pool. Mm. You don't get involved with the character. You get nothing internal for Bill. He just tells people he's looking for his son. Mm. This is the opposite of what I love, people. It is the opposite of what I love. Don't ask me to review this kind of film unless you want me to tell you it's the opposite of what I love. Don't ask me to review Kubrick. I am in a world of shit. I'm in too truthful a mood right now. I gotta say, I can't bullshit. Because this is on the table. So uh, Tommy's now in the city. He um, does some more of the green peyote and wogs into a condor. The condor flies over the city. It's like that bit in Far Cry Primal where you get into the uh, brain of an owl. And uh, he finds precisely the right apartment block. And then Tommy climbs up that apartment block, literally like climbing up the side of a, a building. It's it's a really quite impressive stunt, actually. It's it's not quite Burj Khalifa in Mission Impossible 4, but it's impressive. And um, he finds his mother and father just sleeping, just just napping in uh, their apartment. And he's like, hey, how's it going, Mom? Right, bye. And then fucks off. It's like, that's a... Dun, 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 where he meets his mother again. Dun, 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 dun. Because he doesn't have a strong mother figure from the tribe. And that would, again, that is a key drama scene. And it's not in it. It's not there. I'll tell you something else that's not there. At the beginning of the film, he has a little sister who rats him out when he goes running off into the forest. Sister she takes just no evaporates. She is cast. She's in the cast list as older Heather. But she does not participate in any scene that I could see. I think she's hovering around in the background a couple of times, but no. The family drama element of this could have been the backbone of this film. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the the part of the part of the problem with that is that at the end of the film, um, one of the big things that it hinges on is what will Tommy choose to do. But because we don't know Tommy. Because we it's haven't got not, to know him, and we don't really know what that world's like. He doesn't spend any time there. But, and, 
But How could he possibly know, choose? We don't know his family either. There, there's no, not drama, there's no conflict yeah. in this choice for him. Tommy's like, I stay with the tribe. And his dad's like, yeah, I knew you were gonna. Yeah. I, I mean, again, that would be a great dramatic scene. And there is that scene, kind of. One moment I forgot, actually, is when they free the girls from the brothel, the girls who've had their norks out the whole time have been put in, like, sort of pastely, flowery, like... Uh, hot neon dresses mm. uh, by the, 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 their slavers and they run out and they're pulling these clothes off and getting back to nature and, and just like sort of yep, just these are coming back out again that, it's a really nice way of sort of reasserting themselves that is a crass but significant way of pointing out that the the, the kind of the perspective on whether the human body is inherently rude obviously it's not but the the whole thing about basically boobs sorry norks the whole thing about norks only being sexualized if you cover them up if you say these you know these are uh private and should not be seen by anybody Mm. by your husband um then that's the point at which they become I don't know, obscene for want of a better word. The, but the, for these women, it's the it's the action of covering them up that makes them mm. sexualized, which is a real flip. If these women were to walk past a building site with disgusting pig men on it, who would shout at them, "Get your tits out! Get your tits out! Get your tits out!" For the lads, oh, they're already out. We'll cover them up. What's the point? Then? Cover them up. We don't <laughs> want to see them now. Get your tits out for the lads. It's all got to be for us. It's all got to be. In service of us. Indeed. But again, the fact that they get that scene to of, of shredding these clothes and going, no, we're going to do what we want to do. It's on the nose. Gives but them a little It's one of the nicer bits of the film. Agency. Yeah, a little bit more agency. And the fact that they actually assist in their exodus from that place rather than simply becoming wailing heaps on the floor. Yeah. The problem with it is, and, the, and in terms of the presentation of women in this particular movie, is that and it's all John not... all Borman films. There is no, hmm, there is no um, real in-depth female character to have agency on her own behalf. It is collective agency for the women as a tribe. Oh, there's Guinevere in uh, Excalibur, for like all your kind, ye are false. false. And there's Morgan Le Fay, the rape victim who's vengeful, brilliant. For like all your kind, ye are false. false. Thanks for that nice, well-balanced viewpoint on... 51% 51% of the population. So, <clears throat> obviously, we're making light of this as a coping mechanism because the film is so crass and ghastly. But the kidnap, subjugation, enslavement, rape, and destruction of land, homes, and culture of indigenous peoples across the planet throughout history is not remotely funny. Uh, he doesn't really talk to his mother. Uh, they do the, uh, the the stealth rescue of these. Oh, actually, yeah, no, that's it. They hadn't done the rescue at this point. Mm. He goes and recruits Bill, and that's... So when do he and Bill part company? I I know there's a point where Bill goes back to the dam and um, tries to get them to stop building it. 
Um, and he has an interesting approach, actually. He tries to avoid dist- unnecessary destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, part of Bill's role seems to have been um, the the planning and specifically the safety factors um, in the building of the dam. Mm. And he goes to the guy who's in charge of it all and says, yeah, I, I might have made some mistakes with my calculations. It might not be safe after all, in the hope that the guy will say, oh, well, in that case, we better turn it off. Call it off. We're, we're, we were doing a dam, guys. Guys, we but were doing a dam. Now. We're not now. We decided against yeah. it because safety features haven't been followed. And there's no way that we could maybe check them. Mm. It's a multi-million dollar deal, guys. But it doesn't work, so he goes out and blows it up instead. Which is the only thing you can do with a dam. (laughs) But there is, before this, the scene where they actually do say goodbye. And like I said, there's no conflict in Tommy, but obviously it is hard for Bill to say, you know, you stay with these guys, Mm. clearly you're happy. He's like, yeah, I am, bye. Um, (laughs) That's pretty much what it is. It's, it, uh, he doesn't even get as far as putting the suit on and getting on the boat like Tarzan does. Yeah. He, he's like, so, so what are you going to do, son? He's like, well, I'm going to go. We're going to pray to the frog. The frogs are going to make it rain. They're going to get rid of the dam. And he's like, all right, I'm going to do some modern things just in case the whole frog praying doesn't work. Yes. You pray to the frogs. I'll get some dynamite. Yeah. And between the two of us, we might be able to sort this shit yeah. out. But the look on Powers Booth's face is just like sort of, oh, you and your... Your beliefs, none of which I put any stock in, you're fucked. Um, I've got to do what I can. Mm. But it's but it's it's presented as he's not just the message. It seems as though Borman was trying to get across is that Bill has this revelation that what they're doing is inherently wrong, and they must stop the building of the dam and the bulldozing of the rainforest because these tribes need to be left alone in peace. The way it actually comes across is, okay, I can't have my son back. I'm going to let him go. This is the one thing I can do for him Mm. to enable him to live his life the way he wants to. It is actually has a a feeling of great significance in it about the father-son relationship, just possibly not the one that John Borber was trying to tell. Yeah. Or maybe he was. Maybe that was sort of a secondary theme. Let him sit beside you And eat right off your plate You don't have to be afraid There's nothing here to eat Our princess, you might like it If you so then uh, they go back to the uh, invisible uh, camp and Tommy gets high as fuck and prays to the frogs and uh, lots of rain comes and uh, uh, Powers Booth goes to the dam blows it up with a winch and dynamite he does something to it the only bit I remember vividly is him standing on the top watching Mm. it blow and uh, that ruins the whole plan and uh, you know it's it's not like they're you know rebuild it or anything but uh, not immediately anyway this is another one of those based on true events so did this bit happen no (laughs) thing Um, let's actually look at the validity of of how true it was the film was uh, promoted as based on a true story. Critic uh, Harlan Ellison, in his book Harlan Ellison's Watching, 
uh, wrote that uh, attempts by the Scan Library Reference Research Company to get background information on the real story uh, revealed that Rospo Pallenberg's original screenplay was based on several stories, including an article in the Los Angeles Times about a Peruvian labourer whose child had been abducted by a local Indian tribe and located 16 years later, almost fully assimilated. Uh, but all of the other drama surrounding it was not there. Uh, Pallenberg's agent told Scan that uh, while Borman claimed to have read the original Times article, he had not, but was simply working from Pallenberg's screenplay. According to Scan, Borman uh, told NPR, all things considered, that uh, his son was still living with the tribe in 1985 and identified the tribe as the... Mayaruna. Yet detailed anthropological studies of that tribe do not mention an adopted outsider. So details on this one are spotty at best. Yes, it would appear so. However, a contemporaneous January 1985 review in Variety magazine states up front that the movie is based on an uncredited true story about a Peruvian whose son disappeared in the jungles of Brazil. This fact demonstrates that the source of the film's script was known at the time of release. The LA Times article also mentioned that the Peruvian child had at the time decided to stay with the tribe. Another potential source for the Emerald Forest is the book Wizard of the Upper Amazon by F. Bruce Lamb, the story of a second-hand account of Manuel Cordova's kidnapping when he was a teenager working for rubber cutters in the Amazon in the early 1900s. He was taken by a group of Indians to a very remote Indian village. These Indians were of a fierce, independent disposition and had fled into the interior because they refused to exist in the subservient situation imposed on them by the rubber barons of that time. Rubber barons! Cordova was incorporated into their tribe and describes a life strikingly similar to the one depicted in the Emerald Forest. Also, Wizard of the Upper Amazon sounds close to Wizard of Oz, and obviously the Emerald Forest is evocative of the Emerald, Emerald City. City. yeah. Huh. But, I mean, it's an old story. Eh? Gene ML's Clan of the Cave Bear is about a... Cro-Magnon child who gets adopted by Neanderthals when her people get consumed by an earthquake, and that was written in 1980. Bingo. And that has a lot in common with that. And actually, there was a movie of that with Daryl Hannah, mm-hmm. 1986, a year after this. I'm also slightly re- uh, reminded of um, Jean-Jacques Anou's Quest for Fire from 1981, which again... It's 80,000 years in the past. That would be um, certainly closer to Neanderthals than... Oh, very early Cro-Magnon than they Yeah, are. apparently, yeah. Cro-Magnons. Now, it's uh, somewhat churlish to uh, compare Cro-Magnons with... Um, tribal peoples living in the Amazon in 1985, but there's still a through line. They are still closer to that culture than they are to this. Mm, yeah. The, the, the changes that have taken place, and again, this goes back to the, the sort of the eco-message, mm. that humans lived in a way that did not have a massive Footprint. impact... Footprint, yeah, is a good way of putting it, on their surroundings. And that's not to say that they didn't affect their surroundings. The 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 characteristic that has made us the dominant species on the planet is that we don't adapt to our environment anymore. Um, I mean, we, did, we didn't even really back when we first came to be. If we were cold, we didn't grow fur. We cut fur off another creature and put it on ourselves. Mm, you know, we died. We affect our environment. We change our environment to suit us. We do not change ourselves to suit our environment, for the most part. But the degree to which we've done this and caused impacts on the Earth that can be seen from space has occurred within the last... 100 years? Mm, 200. 200 years. Yeah. yeah. 
Since the Industrial Revolution. Since, since yeah, just since coming up on the Industrial Revolution. So mid-1800s. Since then, all this shit has gone down, hmm. pretty much. And uh, it, it, it uh, leaves us with a coda at the end of the movie. Four million Indians uh, originally existed in the Amazon rainforest. It's now dropped to 120,000. It's probably even less than that now. Oh, yeah. 85. That's 33 years ago. Uh, and uh, it, it, the last words are, they still know what we have forgotten, which I kind of love. It's Honestly, if this movie was directed by Terence Malick and been a lot more poetic, and he's done his own Pocahontas story already, I think I probably would have preferred it. I still would probably have found it boring because I found the new world boring. Mm. But it would that dreamlike state is a lot more appealing to me. I'm trying to And think. if it had, had more musings from the internal side of, of these characters. Yeah, I'm trying to think who would have to have directed it to make it particularly appealing to me. Um, well, Jean-Jacques Anou is fantastic with Quest for Fire. He did uh, Name of the Rose. Mm, yeah. He should yeah. have done Climb but the Cave Bear. But that still has that sort of slightly detached yeah. quality about it, but it's it's in a different way. It's not It's not an intellectual detachment. It's kind of a... There aren't many directors who are fantastic at, at, at really being in nature because most directors grew up in cities mm. or, or villages. That's true. You know? George Miller. Honestly, a George Miller, The Emerald Forest would be wonderful. <laughs> I would love to see that. Yeah, George Miller or, um, and I realise I'm going for um, post-apocalyptic environments here, but that's the, the next, that's when it's going to be next, guys. We're going to fuck everything up and then the post-apocalypse is going to be, we're going to have to go back to living this way. We will have no choice. Um, but um, Rachel Talele, based on Tank Girl. Tank Girl, yeah. Also, she might make it vaguely humorous, which this thing desperately needs. My God, some humour in this. Okay, like, Apocalypto is funnier than this. There's that bit where he puts chilli peppers on his gonads. Yes. Accidentally, and the entire <laughs> tribe laugh at him. Yeah. <laughs> they say it will stimulate, but it only burns the shit out of him. That's stimulation. Uh-huh. Okay, so Sam McConkie sent us a, uh, an email because I asked him, what do you see in this movie? Why did you pick this one over all the rest of them? He says, while I have a lot of admiration for this film, it's still imperfect. Okay, I've said this before. Let's stop using the P word, folks. No film is perfect. No film is perfect. Don't search for perfection. Don't say, well, it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect. Mad Max Fury Road isn't perfect. It's near as damn it close enough. Saying it's not perfect is like saying, well, it's not five hours long. Nothing's five hours long, except for the things that are. And they shouldn't be. And they're not perfect. But I mean, like... Do you know why they're not perfect? Because they're five fucking hours long. But five hours long is a quantifiable source. Mm. Perfect is so based on depending on who you tell it to. Absolutely. You show a Mad Max Fury Road to someone who's a staunch Meninist, he'll hate it. Mm. Yes, Absolutely. So nobody use the word perfect from now on, folks. And nobody say, it's not perfect. That's not me criticizing you, Sam. It's just what everyone says. And that's something that I'm going to hopefully spread some seeds here with you, folks. Just get rid of the word perfect. Don't search for it. It doesn't exist. We can have perfect films as individuals. But we can't say this is a perfect film. Absolutely. It's like a relationship. Yeah. You, nobody is a perfect human, but you might be perfect for someone in particular. People call these things imperfections, but they're not. Oh, that's the good stuff. 
And then we get to choose who we let into our weird little worlds. You're not perfect, sport. And let me save you the suspense. This girl you met, she isn't perfect either. But the question is whether or not you're perfect for each other. That's the whole deal. That's what intimacy is all about. Late great Robin Williams. Love him. Uh, but I'm interested to hear about any flaw, any flaws you perceived, storytelling or otherwise. Well, well there you Sam, go, Sam. You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, I feel uh, covering this movie will necessarily draw comparisons to movies with similar themes such as Dances with Wolves, yes, Avatar, Fern Gully, Pocahontas, and possibly The Last Samurai as well. Don't like The Last Samurai. Probably yes, though. Mm. Uh, as, as in, like, the Tom Cruise turns out to be the best samurai who ever was. Bet you weren't expecting us to get the raccoons in there, though. Yeah. It's a bit like the raccoons. It's missing a Cyril sneer. It is missing a Cyril Sneer, actually. You would expect that Powers Booth would be the Cyril Sneer type, but he's not. The closest you get is the guy who's in charge of the dam at the end, and he's in it for all of two and a half minutes. I think the Emerald Forest sidesteps the cliches and tropes of of those films uh, the best. Uh, The white guy isn't necessarily the hero. He is. His (laughs) His son is white, but Tommy has almost no concept of race. Yeah, but he's he's still the white guy. But he's still vividly blonde. But Tommy has almost no concept of race. He truly integrated with the tribe. Yes, he did. There is no blatant finger wagging at the audience from the filmmaker. Yes, there is. See what we've done to the earth. (laughs) There is blatant finger wagging. He calls it the dead world. You don't get much more condemning than that. Why do you think these movies were in vogue for so long? We, I think we covered that. Yeah. It's basically, they were in vogue until the backlash hit. Yeah. If the backlash hadn't hit, they'd have carried on being in vogue because they were they were really important. They were being presented to us by a hippie generation. There was a lot more. Yeah, that's yeah. She's she's right. The uh, the the refocus on. The deforestation started to really happen in the latter half of the 20th century, so the films were a response to that. Uh, Do you feel a movie like this is more relevant or less relevant today? Honestly, it feels more relevant, but it's horribly told, Mm. so no one would watch it. Uh, Nature conservation is widely mocked by some in the political spheres here in America for some reason. Yes, exactly. We we went into it. They made it really uncool. Yeah. You want to save the wolves. Because that's the thing. It's coming from selfish people who are like, I don't care about some nature park. I'm not living in it. Mm. It's because people are selfish. But also, you say for some reason, it's because people who think like that, if they want to maintain things the way they they have been for decades, if not centuries... They don't want to give up anything. Not only do they not want to give anything, they need to convince other people not to want to give up anything. They don't they need to be not outnumbered. So That's they why, need to yeah. make this uncool and you do that by mocking it. That's why climate denial is so loud and obnoxious and yeah, stupid. Absolutely. Climate denial? Cl- climate change denial? Climate that we deny that there is climate at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no climate. What you talking no such about? Thing. Mm. My personal favourite is where, you know, people observe a horrible cold snap and it's freezing because uh, the polar winds are blowing in from the north because of the melting ice caps in the seas blowing. Like, it's it's science, folks. And they're going, what was all that about global global warming? warming. We need some global warming. No, you fucking idiot. Yeah, it's it's the same thing. Well, the same thing. It's a different different angle, but it's like the people who say that we've got to continue to depend on oil because you can't replace it all with solar, or you can't replace it all with wind power, or you can't, can't replace, replace it, it with all hydroelectric. With wave power. 
No, no you replace you, it with all you of those things. get all of those things and you put them together and then you will quite easily replace them. Yeah, well, that sounds too complicated. You, Let's just carry on with exactly. the fossil fuels. And that's the problem. People, if they will accept that a change needs to be made, are looking for a direct replacement. Mm. And that's not how it works. Is that the whole video game debate thing? Jim Sterling was raging this week about how every now and then they say, we're going to look at video games and see if there's something that can be done about the, all of this violence. They go into a room, they talk for a bit, they have no conclusions, they walk out. Distraction achieved. Yeah. All it did was divert attention away from guns for a moment. Absolutely. And you know what I've, I've seen not particularly um, pushed in this particular discussion? Um, and it, it may well be that it was a, an outlying study and it, it doesn't deserve to be uh, looked at in more depth. But apparently when you shift the attention away from do video games cause violence, which is nigh on impossible to prove, um, and look at what genres of video game are more associated with violence, sports games. <laughs> sports games prompt, seem to prompt people to be more aggressive when they've finished playing because if they lose, they get pissed and there is no direct way for them to vent that anger within the game. They haven't been able to punch or shoot anybody. Exactly. They just kicked a ball around and had it taken away from them. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> um... I think there are some other themes in the film, says Sam, uh, that show the corrupting influences of modern man. Yes. Some of these are obvious, like the CD bar and the weapon cells. Some are more nuanced, like when the tribal women strip themselves of the sexy clothes and return to the more natural form. A purification, if you will. Yeah. Uh, also, the ending of the dam seemed a tad ambiguous. Did Bill successfully blow a hole in it, or did nature short out the wire before he could blast it? Oh, my assumption was he'd done it. But yeah, you're right. It, it is possible that, that it could no, have happened I, anyway. I like that it was left somewhat <laughs> ambiguous, because the, they, they dwell on the frogs at the end, and it's like, ah, is this actually working in some way? You know, We're not going to uh, draw a line either way, which I, I, I like. Yeah. <laughs> talking about perspectives this is what they were proving with the guy who climbed up the wires and hung on to the electric mm -hmm. what you don't see is if you zoom in on the dam there's a little frog holding one end of a wire in one hand and the other end in the other getting zapped but shorting out the entire dam that frog saved the whole Amazon rainforest Freddy as FRO7 died a hero yeah <laughs> Right, so was nature the unstoppable force that washed away modern man's presence in the area? I think talking about both scenarios and how they weaken or strengthen the film is essential. See, that's an interesting idea. I don't think that that, was, that really came across. I don't think that was what was being sold in 80s eco-movies. Yeah. It is kind of what they're leaning towards now. Mm-hmm. Coming back to this idea of Mother Earth's going to be fine, what we're going to fuck up is ourselves. We're now getting, to, well, I say we're now getting to, they've been around for a while, but the idea of Mother Nature is going to fight back. And it, she's know, pissed. Obviously, tornadoes don't have consciousness. That's not what I'm trying to imply. But the idea that uh, all of this climate change is resulting in more and more extremes of weather. Um, increases in tropical storms and tsunamis and tornadoes and, and potentially earthquakes as well. And we we don't have Jaegers. We can't fight these hurricanes. hurricanes. You know, all we can do is anticipate and hide and hopefully rebuild to some degree once it's done. Corner to Trump, we can't even send money to Puerto Rico. 
even after the devastation. Yes, we can. Much, do that. M- much more important to keep putting pouring money into Mar-a-Lago. Apparently, I, I don't know how real this was because I was reading it thinking that can't possibly be true. But apparently, there were people who were recommending when the the last uh, hurricane hit Florida mm-hmm. to shoot into it. Brilliant. I really, 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 really hope that that was just somebody being sarcastic. Because, sweet Lord Jesus, what the fuck? Bob Chipman said uh, earlier today, uh, because of democracy, the the fatal flaw is that uh, if 30% of the population are stupid, that means everybody has to be stupid. That's the level it gets brought down to. That's what happens if you just let it slip that little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit too much apathy takes over. Here's just enough Bernie bros going, oh, I'm not going to vote for her because I disagree with her on general principle. Yes, but here's the thing. Once upon a time, we were eating our own feces and Why drinking would beer we do that? because the water was too polluted. Well, it wasn't even polluted. The water was just too unhealthy to drink. Sorry, we ate we our own feces. When was that? that? I don't know. Back in the day. You can't just say that. <laughs> We are we deal with facts, folks. Facts or jokes. Okay, all right. I am I am exaggerating wildly here, but my And point we clearly is, delineate between the two. Yes, okay. All right. My point is that I'm leaving that in, by the way. Once just to illustrate that when bullshit happens, I mark it as bullshit. But you don't eat it. Don't eat it as bullshit. <laughs> okay. The point that I was trying to make is that regardless of how frustrated we might get with people in the modern age who are determined to regress things and desperately want things to go back to, I don't know, some imaginary time that never really existed because they think they had it better then. Um, there was, once upon a time, uh, we, we couldn't really maintain ourselves much beyond the age of about 40 or 50 years old. And I know that there are some areas of the country where that is still the norm. But for the most part, we're not going back to that. We're not going back to the dark ages. We're not forgetting how to make penicillin. Penicillin might not fucking work anymore, but we're not forgetting that antibiotics are a thing or that we need to wash our hands no. after we... So we might die of smallpox if anti-vaxxers manage to get their way. Yes. Yes, this is true. <laughs> Um, and I don't quite know how you necessarily tackle that one, other than insisting that okay, if you want to do that, that's fine. But you can go and live in this yeah, go to an island, valley somewhere, anti-vaxxers island. Mm. You don't get to be part of the human race if you won't vaccinate. How about that? Like a, a, a the barrier for entry. Mm. You get to go and live on anti-vaxxer island, yeah. and then when they all die of smallpox. That's fine. They've only hurt themselves. They've wiped themselves out. No one goes near that island. La Isla de la Muerta. What does that mean? The Island of Death. I know. Everyone knows what that means. Uh, Lastly, says Sam, uh, I think the physical acting needs to be addressed. The pivotal scene at the waterfall where father and son meet is very effective visual storytelling. I think the whole film is good at this. Also, Borman broke his toe, I'm assuming young Borman, uh, multiple times during production. It would make his stunts very painful. Ow. That's not a good thing. No, I mean, it's, it's just, it's <laughs> suffering for his craft. Yeah. Okay. So I'm assuming his dad was like, everybody broke their toe out here, walk it off. Not everybody. <laughs> dad, you take me to the nicest places. <laughs> yeah, and uh, honestly, um, when I think of really fantastic physical acting, this doesn't 
Like, it doesn't really register enough for me. I mean, I've got things like Planet of the Apes with the incredibly expressive yeah, physical acting there uh, between both performance capture artists and uh, uh, digital artists to really capture that nuance. Acting and, and visual storytelling is a diff- difficult thing to categorise and to, to quantify in terms of quality because, again, it's subjective. It depends what the person watching it demands. There are certain dramatic films which are Oscar nominated and clearly somebody thinks they're awesome and I watch them and I think this really people said the acting in this was amazing it's so bland and it's so dull and yet the kind of films that I like the type of acting that's in them tend to be the very intense almost fairy tale style where things are simplified but dialed up and I don't think that that's a flaw in me. I don't think it's that I. you've got a kid's way of looking at things, you can only understand that kind of emotional presentation. It's just that the style of... the Sorry, not the style, the medium of film, for me, that's what that requires to, to communicate it in that form. It's like paintings that, that people did that everybody raved about that are like brown factories against grey smoke and... It, marvellous not something I'm going to sit and look at because it just doesn't appeal to me at all meaningful to some obviously and, and of a very high quality as far as some people concer- are concerned but not what I want to look at bring on the surrealists as far as I'm concerned vivid colour pictures that don't make any sense mm-hmm. elephants with legs that go on forever Actually, thinking about it, uh, the uh, uh, specific, the, the Planet of the Apes films, the Caesar trilogy that has just finished are um, splendid versions of this with the very primal apes and the, uh, mm. the, the mankind still living on the bones of civilization and the, the conflict there. Those are an incredibly vivid modern-day version of this, mm. <laughs> even down to the fact that Caesar went to live with another tribe and then came back. Yeah. And it's cyclical as well because it's not about the the tribes being destroyed by the encroaching humans. It's about the reclaiming yeah. of that world. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we hate movies when they, uh, they, when they don't like a film tend to recommend something that's uh, a better version of it. And I'm going to recommend the Planet of the Apes uh, trilogy. If you, for some reason, haven't seen these films, they're three of the best blockbusters of recent years. They are understated, very nuanced mm-hmm. And they're anti-action films where kind of like this might have been if they'd had that focus. You don't want bad things to happen. You don't want action to happen. When a gun comes out, you go, (gasps) and you don't want it to go off. I love that. And I feel like that is the successor to this. Because again, it's humans not respecting their world and environment and... uh, and coming a cropper as a result, as a species. And it's not so much approving of a tribal existence over a modern existence, so much as it is approving of unity over conflict. Mm. Or over... over um, Div- colonialism and yeah. the, the idea of our way is better than your way and so we're going to steamroller your way. Yeah. So, Sam, we honestly hope you got something out of this 
We hope it didn't upset you too much. The last thing we want to do when we do these things is just to tread on everybody's toes. But I think that makes it clear, folks. When you commission something from us, if you suggest it and we say, ah, we're, we're not really sure about that or we'll give it a go, and especially if we actively tell you we dislike the work of the director you're suggesting, then it might not be as good as if you say, would you do a commission on this? And we go, oh, yeah, you know what? That I could totally see us doing. We never would normally, but that I can see us doing. We are going to look for as much as we can to give you guys your value for money. Because we have a remit to you guys to make the best show we can. If that means being fierce and harsh and angry and suggesting alternatives that we consider to be far superior, then so be it. We don't pull our punches on this show. And in closing, um, I'm going to reiterate the fact that I can see the beating heart at the core of The Emerald Forest. I know it's a good film. I don't consider it to be a, a, an accomplished technical film mm. at all. I think it fails on almost every single level for me. But I can't fault its conscience. This is the last in our early 2018 run of commissioned shows. The next time we are open for requests, I will let you all know. But by all means, check in the meantime whether we're comfortable covering whatever it is you want us to. It might even be something we're going to be doing for free anyway. Bear in mind, TV, books and video games are a lot more difficult to incorporate into our style of podcast. They're possible, but we are less likely to want to nibble than if you approach us with a movie that we can watch and absorb and ruminate over and talk about for two hours in the kind of depth that complements our show. The other factor is, of course, that mo the more hours we have to spend on it, the higher the price and thus the more pressure on us to perform and make it worth what you pay us. So it costs you more, it takes more of our time investment, and it will probably end up running to multiple shows if it's a full-ass TV series. So you may love The Expanse, but it might not be worth it, especially if we don't end up loving The Expanse. School of Movies is funded by you, beautiful people on Patreon, and our special $15 sponsors get named credit. So, many thanks to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finn Barnicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Next week, we finally begin our Guillermo del Toro season. So, for your homework, track down the following movies, because these are going to be essential viewing. The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy 1 and 2, Crimson Peak, and The Shape of Water. We're also doing the Blade Trilogy in one show, but those are less essential to see beforehand, and most people have seen at least one of them anyway. So we kick off next week with The Devil's Backbone. Get it on Blu-ray, and we will see you here for one of the best ghost stories ever told. Okay, that was the Emerald Forest. Please, folks, don't ask us to do another John Borman film. <laughs>
I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's Out. Out.